Thank you for everybody, for all eight people that are out there watching us. We appreciate you. Um, actually, um, has now. So, Nicoletta, you get a little nervous. There's a lot of people that watch now. And anybody who doesn't see it now, like literally, I think 8,000 views last time. So, just throwing a little Thanks. extra pressure on you to do a good job. No pressure. Um, so, today we're going to have a cool one, I think. I love it. And we've all just been having a very brief chat because we didn't want to get too much into it before we started. But we are going to be talking about what it is to live a life of recovery. We get into a life of recovery and then to go into the treatment industry to work in this field, which is for some people, and I think we would all agree that it's a blessing beyond blessings to be able to do something we have a normal passion for, to earn a living doing something you're passionate about, I think is rare in this world. It shouldn't be, but it probably is. And I feel blessed that I'm able to do it. And other people try to do that, and it doesn't work out very well. And so one of the overarching, which we're going to come back to and we're going to get into, but one of the overarching themes of this is that three out of four, because really, what do we have this for? People are going to watch us. You get what you get out of any kind of podcast. But a lot of people young in recovery look to become counselors. I think it's part of human nature. I believe that people are mostly good. I'm not a pessimist or a cynic. I believe most people have that. And when you get sober, it's like that that charcoal-covered, dirt, grime-covered, perfect diamond that we had when we were born gets covered with a lot of yuck as we get older and the fear, guilt, shame, the misery of the of addiction and alcoholism all cover it up. And eventually you get sober and you start cleaning that off a little and some of that diamond starts shining through. And when it does, I find that people want to help others. I think that's a natural, innate part of a human being. Most, most human beings on the planet is we actually do want to help people. And when people get in early recovery... It comes out a lot. There's a lot of people who do. And so anybody watching that's new to recovery, you know, you may be thinking to yourself like, oh, I'd like to be, well, one of the overarching warnings, right? The caution label at the bottom of this one is three out of four people who do try and do it relapse. So that's the real deal. So you got to be mindful and careful. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Motivations, the plan, how you go about it, if it's right for you. And we're going to talk a little bit about all of that. Um, so today, joining us, I've got... Um, Nicoletta uh, Danisic? Correct. Did I you say it right it. or not? You got it. You sure, right? Nobody okay. says it right. I, yeah, but I from another country, right. but <laughs> pronounce it right. Danicic. Danicic. Yeah. See? There you go. Nicoletta <laughs> Danicic. I like to say it right because that's who you are, beautiful. And she is the director of Milestone House. If you've not heard of Milestone House, I'm a big fan. They are out by uh, out in Dover and they are rock star. Milestone is kind of works in tandem with Excel treatment yes. facility and they are amazing they have a true sober community out there mm -hmm. i've always been a fan of your guys we refer people out there um, when and where appropriate so and mike frank i love mike he's amazing <laughs> mike frank who runs the joint is going to be here on our next podcast and yeah. the topic will be announced um i've got paul hart um he's a behavioral uh, health technician and supervisor at our very own blue crest recovery <laughs> center right. wait until you hear about paul um, he's one of my favorites he's a <laughs> fan favorite at blue crest he's a great god guy man and i'm all about that and then we've got stephanie davis is it Stephanie Davis, the easiest one to pronounce. I know, it's pronounce. hard. It's hard to get that one right. I know, I know. Stephanie, uh, she is the regional manager for RCA, Recovery Centers of America, for anybody not in the know, but I think everyone in the world probably knows what RCA is by now. Um, and she's the regional manager for all of New York and all of New Jersey. So anybody out there and that needs help and you're looking to reach out to someone, she runs their outreach. And in anything in New York and New Jersey, if you want help, that's the gal to call. Or she can put you in touch with the people who you should be calling at RCA. And me, of course, I'm Richie. I'm the CEO of Blue Crest. And that's it. So 
Reminder, which Kevin makes me do, you can listen to this podcast on our website, bluecrestrc.com. Uh, you can subscribe on the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Anybody who is in on YouTube, if you're listening, feel free to sign into your YouTube account. That's the only way you can leave a question or a comment is signing into your actual account, and then they're able to, to give questions. Um, we're going to ask Nick if there's any uh, uh, listener questions or comments throughout the show. Nick will read them out to us. You may like some of them and you may not like others, but we just, we're just we just going to throw it out there regardless. <laughs> Nick, are you around? Nick's not here now, so it's very unlikely we're actually going to get the questions. <laughs> but he will be here in the background somewhere. He's always here hanging in the background. Um, and that's it. So um, how we decided we were going to get this uh, thing started was I'm going to have everybody go around. I haven't told anybody what the order was going to be. And I was going to pick Nicoletta first because oh. she's the most nervous and I still might. Yeah. I just haven't decided yet. But we're all going to go. We're going to do this almost like a um, what it was like, what happened, and what we're like now leading us up to working in the treatment field. And then we're going to kind of bounce back and forth some highs and lows and um, cautionary tales. And I'm sure a lot of stuff will, will come up just naturally on its own. But we're going to ask everybody to do a, a little background of where they come from, experience, strength, and hope. Um, the shortened version of this story, if you can include how long you've been sober um, and how long you've been working in the treatment field kind of as you start to tell your story to kind of set the stage for everybody. And then if you can give us five to eight minutes of kind of who you are and that way everybody watching gets can kind of know who this is sitting here talking about the topic, that would be great. And why don't we start with Stephanie? I did Woo. it just so she all like this, but then she'll realize better to get it over with. You're a torturer, okay. man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to set timers for each of you that you don't have to exactly to, but it'll give us each a um, just a general idea of our time so we don't. There we go. Ready, set, go. No, <laughs> Stephanie, go. All right. So as you were previously told, my name is Stephanie Davis. I am the regional manager for Recovery Centers of America. Um, how I got here today is a long and distinguished story. Um, like so many others, my addiction um, was the worst of the worst. I mean, it came with all of the bells and whistles. Homelessness, arrest, loss of family, loss of dignity, shame, guilt, you name it. I am a, um, I am a 12-step girl, so I don't believe in reveling on, you know, the nitty-gritty. I will say, though, that it is only by the grace of God that I am alive today to share my story. Um, for me, finding treatment wasn't so easy. Um, I had no family at that point. I had destroyed a nursing career. I had uh, really pushed anyone, everyone that cared anything about me away. Um, I was still surrounded by all those that said they were my friends, as long as I had drugs in my pocket, right? You know? Um, but uh, it was only by the grace of God that I was um, found by another soul who happened to be in law enforcement. Um, and this, this particular officer, uh, would just not leave me alone. She said, there's something in there. There's something that you need to give back and, uh, handed me the card of someone that's very much like me today and, uh, said, just give her a call. And I did. And, uh, I picked up my first white trip 
in detox and uh, I spent 11 months under the treatment umbrella. By the time I picked up that first white chip and detox, I was completely broken and uh, had figured out by only the grace of God that mm-hmm. my way didn't work. And uh, everything my way had brought me was where I was at right then. Now, those were only fleeting moments because I was that client. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was that client that looked at the fence every day and struggled and threatened to they threatened to kick me out multiple times and uh you know but i held on with every white knuckle i had and Mm. uh i made it through every level of care including sober living we were just saying how much i appreciate that extended uh blanket of love and support that's so necessary um but i will say i sit here 16 years later still with that one white chip Um, And it was only by the grace of God and following the lead of those within the treatment world that that got me where I was at. And, uh, you know, today I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a sponsor. I am a friend. I am a daughter and a sister. And I am so many things. And only through my recovery can I say that I'm those things. Hmm. Um, And since that first white chip, I knew that I wanted to give it back, but I didn't know how, through the grace of God, I was going to do that while maintaining, you know, everything in life that I knew I had to have. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much me in a nutshell. That's excellent. For this, like, that's a perfect kind of, now I know who you are, where you came from, and you didn't, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, I love it. Actually, I'm gonna change the time to six minutes. Because if you could do that in four, <laughs> less than four, you guys shouldn't need more than that. Oh, okay. You just change the bar for everybody else. Now, you know what? We'll keep it what I said. Because you just might be better at the rest of us at being more concise. Me, I just go on and on. <laughs> so now we will, um, without dragging it out much further to torture the poor soul, we will go with Paul. Oh, oh, hey, oh, 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 you thought I knew. He loves me. He does love you. He's saving right, the best right. for last. He loves me. He really yeah. is saving the best for last. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you, Stephanie. I'm, I'm Paul Hart. Uh, I'm a supervisor of the Behavioral Techs at Bluecrest. Uh, love my job. And so about me, um, I always, I, you know, I've got a story that I like to tell whenever I, um, I talk about me. Um, first of all, I'm from New York. I'm not from New Jersey. And uh, I grew up in, uh, and I was a high school basketball star. You wouldn't be able to tell it looking at me now, but I was all city uh, basketball player in New York. And um, I'll never forget this one. Uh, in my junior year, there was this big basketball game, and um, and, uh, and and there was this big article in the Daily News, and it said Paul H has to have a huge game if my high school was going to win. And I'll never forget reading that article. I'll never forget reading that. And I took it around to show all, to show all, my, um, all my teachers. And um, so we went out, and we got ready for that game, and I still remember walking into that other high school. You know, and I can still feel it now. I remember walking in that school, and it felt like everybody was paying attention to me. And I was like, yeah, I walked in. And then my teammates were giving me five, and we walked in. And we went to the locker room, and everybody was saying, yo, Paul, man, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I went out that day, and I had a pretty good game. I had about 29 points, about 11, and 11 rebounds, 11 assists, depending on how good I feel. You know, those numbers change depending on how I feel. So, uh, but I had a pretty good game. 
we won that game. It's a triple-double. Okay, I got a triple-double that. that day. It's a triple-double. Right? We got on a school bus to come home, and one of their cheerleaders came over and sat on my lap. So now you got to remember, the 16, 17-year-old guy, I've got this cheerleader on my lap. I just wanted to be game. Everybody's talking about me. And then now the guys were drinking on the bus. Somebody handed me a beer. So now I've got a beer in my hand. I just won the game. This cheerleader sitting here. <laughs> and I only tell that story because that moment was the greatest moment of my life. I have arrived. And I feel like I spent my whole life chasing that moment i always wanted the girl the drink or the drug and the attention and i spent years chasing that so um i went on uh, i went to a division two school i had the opportunity to go to a small division one or a big division two i chose to go to a small division two because i wanted to be the big guy there didn't want to go sit the bench and I um, went to college, and uh, my addiction uh, took me. I lost my college scholarship through my addiction. I don't. I can tell you about it later. But uh, I went to college, drank my way out of my um, out of my scholarship. Um, knew I had a drinking problem. Came back home, graduated from college. Decided at my uh, after I graduated from college, I said, you know, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with me, and I couldn't figure it out. So I went to the military. And because I did well in college, I went to Navy OCS in Newport, Rhode Island. I went there, and after its two eight-week programs, so 16 weeks after the first eight weeks, they gave me some time off. They gave us, and I went down to town, uh, and uh, went down to town and went to this bar and uh, drank myself into oblivion. I lost. When I came to, it was time to go back. Um, to, it was time to go back. To, to lead the 26th Battalion and PT, and I was a day late. Needless to say, <laughs> needless to say, I was AWOL from the United States Navy. I lost my, I lost my um, ability to become a United States Naval officer. Mm -hmm. So with all that being said, um, I knew that I had a drinking problem. I came back home, got a good job in an insurance company, and there's when it started getting bad for me, and I, um, I met a guy named uh, Ray L., and uh, he told me that I had a problem. And uh, he helped me get into treatment. Um, I went to treatment. And I'll say this. Treatment helped me get nine and a half years of sobriety. And after nine and a half years, I took back my will. I started believing that I had it. And after nine and a half years of sobriety, I relapsed. Um, in that nine and a half years, I had gotten an MBA. Um, I had gotten a great job. I was doing big things. Um, I relapsed after nine years of sobriety. I was working on Wall Street. I had that six-figure job. I relapsed and lost it all. Hmm. I lost it all. Um, now I've got eight years back, almost eight years back. Um, I love what I'm doing. I'm a behavioral tech <coughs> supervisor. And Richie, you mentioned about having a passion to do this. I love this job. Um, I love what I'm doing, and I wouldn't want to do anything else. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's a good one. Another very good. Well done. Yeah. And you did it in less than the six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a lot of pressure for All you. All right. I got more, <laughs> more minutes. And now we will finally, actually, instead of me jumping in and telling a little about myself, we'll let Nicoletta go. 
Thank you. I'm Nicoletta Danisek, Danicic, it's hard to pronounce, so just Nicoletta. I am the director of Milestone House. It's a transitional sober living place in Dover. That's current status, but uh, I've been sober for a little bit over 14 years. I've worked in the field since I was seven months sober, officially. I had my first paycheck from the Milestone House. I kind of fell into it. Uh, but I'm from Serbia, Belgrade, former Yugoslavia. I was born and raised there. When I was 14, I came into, uh, I emigrated to New York City uh, with my sister. My mom was already there, and um, there were some hardships in the beginning of our stay where we ended up being homeless and uh, living in an abandoned building. This is way before I picked up a drink or a drug, and, um, and we got out of that through hard work and perseverance and effort and survival skills and, you know, uh, setting goals that, you know, that we can overcome. So I became very ambitious. I became very driven. And by the time I was 16, I graduated high school, a valedictorian. I was living by myself, supporting myself. I put myself through college. I had some academic success. I had some financial success. I um, never really knew what I wanted to do. I think as a result of my drinking and drugging, I was changing my major like every six months. <laughs> Arts and English. I ended up graduating with a philosophy degree. And, um, you know, to reward myself, I would come home and, you know, the drinking would create relief from this life and this pressure that I was experiencing internally and from like not knowing myself and being disconnected from the depth of my being, basically. I mean, it was a solution to my unmanageability, really, and inability to meet life on life's terms, actually. And um, when I was 27, I experienced a, 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 a profound surrender, really, um, under the influence of drugs and alcohol. I'm... Uh, an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I shout that from the rooftops. This is who I am. This is what I've been through. This is what I've done. It's also to paint a picture of kind of the life I lived. And, uh, and I think cocaine use also sped up my bottom by the time I was 27, even though I've lived alone from the age of 16. Uh, so it was an 11-year step one experience <laughs> that I just couldn't get with. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there were efforts in the last few years of my drinking and drugging. You know, there was this idea, like, I can succeed and I've done so much so that there's absolutely no way that I can get through this, right? I kept relying on my mind to come up with an answer on how to get through this, this difficulty I was having with managing my drinking and my drugging. And uh, at that point, I was working for a company. It was the, uh, the greatest a rug company in the world that worked with Christie's and Sotheby's. I was actually in charge of their accounting department. And uh, um, I would be sending messengers out during lunch to get me like airplane bottles. And I was having all, all these like ugly experiences that we need to have to kind of get in touch with reality of what's going on. You know, fainting in the New York City subway and having seizures when I was like 26 and... Uh, you know, not making it to work and being late and all of that, all of these experiences, all of the pain that comes with. And uh, at 27, I had an, a profound experience under the influence of drugs and alcohol. At that point, I was already seeing a, th a therapist who was trying to convince me I was an alcoholic and I was trying to convince him that I wasn't. And uh, when I had this experience, he actually referred me to treatment in uh, Pennsylvania called Marwort. I uh, uh, came in there 
not understanding why they wanted to search me because I didn't understand why anybody would go to treatment with anything on them. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that was never an option. <laughs> like, you know, either you do it all the way mm-hmm. or once you go in, you go in kind of. That was my idea. I had no idea that there was a treatment world out there. I had no understanding of that. and But I had an incredible experience in treatment, I think because of the ex- incredible experience I had with my step one experience of unmanageability and powerlessness. And... Um, and then I put myself in a halfway house for women, also in Pennsylvania, for 90 days because I was uh, I was sure that I was going to drink, even though the mental obsession was removed to drink. I was sure. I was so scared that I wanted to be locked up. And then uh, I said, okay, it's time to rebuild life and build back because I lost everything, my apartment, my job, uh, finances, bank account, phone, everything. And uh, <clears throat> they gave me an option of a sober house in Dover, and <laughs> I landed there, never having seen it, on a Saturday, January 13, 2007, with five months sober. And Mike Frank, my current boss, opened the door, all frazzled and overwhelmed with the one sober house he was running by himself at that time. And, uh, you know, I think I teared up <laughs> at the sight of Mike in the sober living home. <laughs> <laughs> after New York City, after living in Manhattan <laughs> for, <laughs> for 13 years. And no, this is not a Jersey or city accent. <laughs> I wonder if that's a, uh, an act of Mike's. He always seems frazzled. And over <laughs> <laughs> it's an act. <laughs> You'll see next next podcast. Yeah, exactly, Stay exactly. tuned. Um, and uh, But, you know, listen, I was grateful. I was humble. I was open. I was so broken that I was open, so it really didn't matter where I was. I was grateful to be alive, and um, and I got there, and uh, I did get a job, any job that I could get in the area so I could pay rent and start building back, but <clears throat> after work, because I didn't have a phone, uh, I didn't have the money for a phone, I would uh, see Mike all frazzled, you know, with two fingers typing receipts in his office you know a pile of them like this i'd be like can i help you and uh, of course i would be in like five minutes you know done you know i also made this spreadsheet and i made this a little bit easier for you and let me know if you need more help there's three hours till the next meeting you know and so i fell into what i'm doing today i didn't ask for it i didn't look for it i didn't wish for it uh to me it didn't matter i have a gift of being a very good worker i don't pat myself on the back with that i just i've been working full-time since i was 16 and uh i i take seriously responsibilities and i'm sort of a perfectionist and i you know want to do well and you know i want to please and all of that was present but um i did get a sense that this was the only thing that I started doing that I was actually enjoying or speaking the language of it from a personal experience. So that was like very exciting. Other jobs were not exciting. This was very exciting. So I started volunteering for Mike and and uh, I was having an experience, an incredible experience with step work uh, and uh, and kind of trusting life. Trusting God, trusting higher power, trusting life, trusting universe, trusting whatever came my way. And um, I think Mike offered me like pennies more to quit the job I got in Denville and to help him out administratively in the office. You know, he just purchased the second house at that time and uh, he really just needed help. 
And I think he saw the way I lived and moved at that point and how I was moved by step work. Wow. I can talk. I'm going to take her three minutes and his two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. We have the time. All right. And, um, and I started working April of 2007 when I had seven months sober. And now we have four houses, a treatment center, and a coffee shop. It's a little empire, Dover Empire. So that's a little bit of my story. All right. <laughs> Thank you. It's good stuff. Absolutely. Um, the the treatment shop, uh, the uh, coffee shop, I love because yeah. that's what makes it like part of the community. Yeah. Up there. They have some newly sober kids who work in the coffee shop. <laughs> the coffee shop is right in back of the treatment facility, which is down the street right. from one of the sober homes, and right. it's all like a very community community kind of thing. Out there, which wow. I, love. I love that. I think it's Nic- cool. Nicola, did you say that you went to Marworth? Yep. That was actually my first treatment. Yep. Center. That was actually in Marworth in Pennsylvania. Marworth in Pennsylvania. One of the things I like about Marworth from people I know uh, that have gone up, and I know a guy who worked in the counseling services unit of the FDNY who sent a lot of Mm -hmm. people to Marworth at the time. And the one thing I liked about Marworth is that they have uh, big books everywhere. Yes. And that means a lot to me. Yes, Yes. absolutely. There's one common thread, right? Yes. We're all big book people. Exactly. Greatest experience. I got to tell you, I walked Um, in there and they said, why you're here? I said, I don't want to die. She handed me the big book. Exactly. At intake. Boom. There you go. Now, I for was anybody who doesn't know, the big book is, a, is, is literature. In, in Out in the 12-step world, there's all sorts of fellowships. None of us at the level of radio, press, or film will align ourselves with a particular fellowship. But there is a book that is the basis of all 12-step work. Whatever fellowship has grown has grown out of that, mm-hmm. which many of us were lucky enough to have been handed a copy of and followed Thank some God. directions to get really sober. Um but, you know, one of the other reasons why it's good to have different folks from different walks of life and different... One thing I noticed common about the three of you that's different than me was that you all seem to be graduated of college. You went mm-hmm. to college, you went to I college, did. you went to college. Yes. Not me. I'm not a college graduate. I wow. did fail out of a college. <laughs> <laughs> I did go to college for five and a half years on Staten Island. <laughs> I didn't even get 50 credits. Much to my father's chagrin. My father looked at me one day and he said, are you going to ever effing graduate or what? <laughs> and he stopped paying my tuition and that was it after five and a half years. Um, so I'll give just a, a quick short one for myself because you know, especially for to set the stage for this, I love the way you guys all, because it kind of, I skip over all the stuff that I usually love to talk about, and I'll say that it's interesting that you said you fell into this. Mm-hmm. Um, I never planned on doing this. Well, mm. I always had it in my mind, maybe at some point when I'm like in my mid-50s and I retire from Wall Street, maybe one day I'll open a rehab. I like the idea of being able to kind of you know, kind of run something that I love to do just myself, you know, not non-professionally in my kitchen, at my kitchen table, which I've been doing for 24 years now. Um, I like the idea of kind of maybe doing something like that, but it was just an idea that might never even be born out. Um, but so for me, I, I, it's weird. A lot of people go to Wall Street and they get messed up. I went to Wall Street already a full cocaine addict and alcoholic, <laughs> and I'm on this crazy trading desk like you see the movies Boiler Room. I mean, I was like, I was a kid, and I fell in with these lunatic people, and I was on one of these trading desks, and I was just like qualifying leads, and I'm getting there. You work at seven o'clock in the morning until seven thirty eight o'clock at night for two hundred bucks a week. 
and you had to earn, make your bones. You had to earn your stripes. And then eventually they let you take your Series 7, and if you pass it, you become a broker. That's, that's the deal. And so I'm there, and I'm an animal. And I mean I was an animal, dialing for dollars, just all day long, pop, 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 no stop, all go. You know, that's, I'm a cocaine addict, right? So I'm wasted, and I love, pop, pop, pop. I'm like, absolutely, that just so fit my temperament, my personality. And two of the guys that I was working with, including my boss, was sober. And he saw me <laughs> coked out of my mind with the little white dots. And, you know, he knew. And he called me into his office one day. And I remember on Wall Street, I get called in the boss office. And he goes, so last night, you uh, after at some point yesterday evening, you went to a bar, probably Guido's, because he knew where I was from on Staten Island. He's like, um, and then maybe what? Did you get your first 40 piece at around like 8 o'clock? And I'm like, I literally got a 40 piece at 8 o'clock. I'm like, Holy shit. And he literally, and I said, and I'm thinking to myself, were they following me? Because he's like, you know, at midnight you decided to go home and just get one more 20 and bring it with you. And then you decided at 2 o'clock in the morning you weren't going to be able to sleep anyway. So you called up your guy and literally he yep. called it to what I drank and how much I used almost to the dollar. I'm like, I thought they were following me around. <laughs> and it turns out that he's just an alcoholic and a cocaine addict and he knew exactly what I did the night before. And so that's the first time anybody ever said to me, like, you clearly have a problem and an issue. And it was because I went to Wall Street. And so they took me to my first bunch of meetings, 12-step meetings. I did nothing they suggested. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't get a home group. I didn't do any of the things they suggest. I, they gave me one of those textbooks or whatever that I never opened or looked at. I used it at some point to crush cocaine on many months later. But whatever, that was just me. And I didn't do any, take anything seriously. And I was able to kind of maintain for seven months on the marijuana maintenance program. It does not work. <laughs> eventually, that little baby high, not good enough. And we want to get really high. And eventually, it brings you back. And so it did for me. And so I ended up leaving that particular job. And so I stayed on Wall Street, kind of, right? I was basically unemployable wreck for a long, long time. Like I was, I had already well dropped out of college. I officially left school. It was the timing of it was perfect to get that job. I said, well, I'm done with school. My father already said he wasn't paying anymore after five and a half years. So it was good timing. I was working as a, a cook, a short order cook at Al's Pizzeria on Staten Island on Jewett Avenue. And I leave, I get the job with those guys. I don't fail out with them. I just, just make a decision to go a different direction. And I went to a different place, then I went to a different place, then I went to a different place. And somehow throughout that, I was able to pass my Series 7, and I got my licenses. But I was, in the end, I worked for a particular place. I ended up partnering with, like, one of the biggest cocaine dealers on Staten Island at the time. And he becomes my partner at the brokerage firm, which was a good idea for me to partner <laughs> with that particular guy. Anyway, go on forever about that, but I will say that you know, at that point is where I hit my my absolute bottom. Like I, I was technically employed, but I really wasn't employed because I never went there. If I did go, I was usually violent and angry. And uh, I would show up every once in a while and I blew a really big deal and I had a big opportunity. And, you know, they he, even they were, even he was done with me. You know, I mean, like, even that guy was like, I can't take this anymore. And um, I end up going to my first detox I, you know, no one, I'm the guy that my mom didn't want me in the house. Everyone kicked me out. My brother, my parents, mom, dad, I would go knock on the door. They put the chain. What do you want? That's, you know, it's not like, hey, what's up, Richard? It's, what do you want? My mom, when I went over to her house, I'm the guy that she would clutch, hold her purse the entire time walking around the house. Mm. My mother would never have her purse not be in her hand if I was in the house with them. I punched holes through her walls. I was just, I was just, I was insane um, at that point. And so... 
you know, finally I went to her and knocked on the door and she said, what? And I said, I think I have a problem with alcohol and drugs. I always tell that when I tell my story and she said, you think so? We're the last ones to know. And so, but I knew and I just resigned myself to that's just what it is. I'm an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. I don't give a shit. And that's just how I live. And so, you know, they sent me to Bailey Seton Detox on Staten Island and that was the first time. So I know nothing of the treatment industry because I know detox because I went to detox for seven days. But on Staten Island, and it's still that way. Anybody watching that's from Staten Island, there are rehabs outside of Staten Island. None of us ever looked. We don't know. There's two hospitals on Staten Island. You go for detox, and that's it. And then you go into one of the fellowships, and that's recovery, apparently. I didn't go anywhere. There was no sober living. There was no treatment options or opportunities, at least that I was made aware of. I got lucky that I went the day I got out of detox. I fell in with a group of people who told me, uh, you should do the, the 12 steps. You should do big book. And they gave me a thing, and they, this is what they did, and my sponsor helped me, and he, and he guided me through that way. Right. Um, so I had my experience, right, and I, and I got sober. But I didn't get in the treatment field. Again, I got sober on Staten Island. There was no treatment field. I wasn't even aware of it at that point, right? So now I'm, 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 I'm sober on Staten Island, and I'm doing my thing, and I end up talking about unbelievable. And, and again, we talk about careers and how blessed and lucky I've been and how amazing my career was, but... I literally sponsored a gazillion people, and one of the guys that I sponsored opened a door for me. And I, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, although I'd love to tell the story because it's so cool, but I especially always think of the people watching. I think about the young people in recovery, new to recovery, you're behind in everything in life, right? I was. I was 25 and a half years old when I came in. All my friends had graduated college, who graduated law school, who got married, who's having kids, and I was a bum. I had no credit, I had a rest record, I had nothing, right? I couldn't, my dad finally allowed me to stay in one of the back bedroom of his condo. Other than that, I would have been homeless. I was technically out of the detox. No one would let me in, but my dad gave me one more chance, which was like one of however many more chances, but one more chance to stay with him. But, you know, my point is we all come to it in a diff. we all find ourselves in treatment in different ways with different backgrounds. I was not formally educated. I didn't have a college degree. And one of my sponsees opened a door for me in Wall Street. And he ended up in a way that never, I was a retail stockbroker at that point, selling stocks about companies I knew nothing about. I just had a good, I could talk on the phone and talk you into something. What I was selling you, I had no idea. But when you get sober, I remember my sponsor told me, my time's about to go up, so I'm just going to cancel it and I'll wrap it up. I You can do that when you sit in this chair. But my, I, my, I told my sponsor when I first got sober, you know, he was, I was like doing inventories and doing this different stuff. And my sponsor was like, uh, so what's the problem with you with work? Because I told him, I said, I can't do this anymore. And he said, why not? I said, because it's dishonest. And he said, you're lying to people on the phone. And I said, no, I'm not lying to anybody on the phone. I said, but in a way I am because it's all a lie. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been formally educated in finance. I'm selling a company that I think is going to do okay, but I don't really know. I'm giving a thing. This is what the company does. Tell them it's great. And, but that's not honest because I don't really know if it is great. Like I don't have any real informed way to be able to tell him that. And I said, I'm not comfortable doing it anymore. So now I'm at a crossroads in recovery. You want to be really recovered, then you've got to stop doing, you can't live dirty and stay clean. And once it becomes unacceptable to you personally, you've got decisions to make and you're going to have to do something else. And so here I am and I'm like, I'm about to quit my job. And my sponsor's like, you know, be as honest as you could be. Find something in the meantime. Don't put yourself, you're giving your dad money now for rent, whatever. So I said, all right, I got to do it. And a sponsee opened the door for me and got me a job, a dream job on Wall Street. I could spend an hour, a program just talking about that. It was so insane. I had no business even getting that job. 
Merrill Lynch wouldn't even have uh, given me a job in their lunchroom. I couldn't have been a lunch worker because of all the stuff on my record. They literally would not have let me serve food in their lunchroom, and he got me on a trading desk. It's insane. Having said all that, I did not come to treatment like, you. how did you get in the field? We know, we know, we know. Me, I didn't get into the treatment field until I was 20 years sober, and I didn't intend on doing it. Uh, uh, I had written down here to remind myself to say it, but a lot of really good meetings get started with resentment in a coffee pot. And one of the reasons, the sun, moon, and stars lined up. That's how I found myself in this. But it was twofold. One, a friend of mine had come and said to me, oh, I was in the treatment field. I'm thinking about starting it. Could you introduce me to your friend who has money that maybe they'll invest in a thing? So I was just putting two people together having nothing to do with me whatsoever. So that's how I got. And then that person was like, I'll do it if Richie gets involved. And I was like, who, me? And I didn't even, I, I had no intention of that at all. And at the same token, at the meetings that I go to outside, there were a lot of young kids coming in from all these rehabs. And I'm like, so, do you know, you're getting a sponsor. You're doing 90 and 90. You know, do you, are you going to get, you know, go through the book? And they're like, what book? And what, how do you get a sponsor? And what's 90 and 90? And I'm like, what are they teaching you in these rehabs? <laughs> you know, I was infuriated at my home group constantly. I'd talk to them and I would be like this. I'm like, I don't know what they're going over in these rehabs. You guys are lost. And none of them know what they're supposed to be doing. And so with that resentment and with that just happened, the sun, moon, and stars lined up, you know, boom, all of a sudden I find myself in the treatment field and, and from a different way, right? As somebody who never worked in house, never did anything in the treatment field at all. Right. And now all of a sudden I'm being asked, hey, what do you think about starting a company? You've got a lot of experience on Wall Street and whatever. What do you think? So you don't start by creating it at the top down. You've got to go learn what it is. What do people do at rehabs? And let me figure out what they do wrong, what I don't like. And let me see if I can make it better or fix it. Or at least that was kind of my first, how it was broached for me. Um, it's not the typical way of getting involved in the treatment field. You know what I mean? Mine was a little opposite everyone else's. But isn't that odd, right? The one, you know, and I'm, again, this is recovery. This is real life. Sometimes, you know, the college-educated genius starts off as a tech and eventually ends up running, you know, RCA for New Jersey and New York. You know, somebody else who's like me who couldn't, couldn't hack it in school, all of a sudden I start up running a company. Like, it's people look at it and say, oh, you got no business running that company. I'm like, I know, I hear you. They're going to find out I'm a fraud one day and they're going to pull me out of here. Um, so anyway, um, so now we know kind of who we all are and how we ended up in the treatment field. Um, there's a few things I wrote because I wanted to make sure we, one thing, you mentioned lawn. Before we go into the questions and stuff, I just, there's things, people say stuff and I like to make little notes because I, you mentioned law enforcement, law enforcement. And you I said did. that that person gave a, uh, gave you a card or, or, or pulled you and said, you need, you know, you need more, you need help. Absolutely. So many times that has happened. We've personally experienced that. We go and we talk to all of our local police departments. Yep. The cops, the firemen, the EMS workers, they have an eye. We get calls from them all the time. They'll see a kid that's in trouble. And we, I mean, we, and, and thank you to all of you. We're, most of the ones that we have, there's no insurance, but we're happy to help anyway, you know. But okay. we help everybody, dude. We don't that care. That officer. They call. That saved your life. Saved your life. my Happens life. to us all the time. And I'll tell you, my career has been saying thank you and giving back in yep, every way that I can. But that officer, if in, in my mind, if my own family wouldn't talk to me, but this officer had enough, you know, gumption to not just once, but several times see me, whether it was her beat or, or what have you. But she stopped every single time and said, what are you doing? 
get out of here. And she handed me that card more than once. Yeah. You know, she just, Listen, and thank God she did. It's funny how things change when you get sober. Cause when I was getting, when I was out there using and breaking into cars, I hated the police. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. people the world I wanted to see. And then when you get sober and you start getting a little bit mature, I love a nice strong law enforcement presence in my yeah. neighborhood. I'm weird how things go full circle, right? But yes, and that was so for anybody, even in the treatment field or anybody, listen, give me putting brochures in all the police stations, EMS, the more educated they are about addiction. They need education Absolutely. and addiction just like anybody else. Most of them look at it as, you know, what's the druggie, right? It's the old school. It's how we grew up. A druggie is a dirty, filthy, criminal a dishonest, angry, dangerous shitbag, right? Yep. But that's really not, right? I mean, it's a, it's soccer moms and accountants' kids and policemen's kids and everyone's kids, and it's, it's from any walk of life. Addiction don't care. Right? Right. We don't that's do right. any of that. Addiction right. don't care. We don't, in treatment, we don't do politics. We don't do nope. religion. We don't do race. We, you know why? Because addiction don't, don't care. care. It goes at, it hates right. us all, but that's it right. wants us all dead. Right. So we always say, and this is old school treatment stuff, as you guys know, you put your life problems and all the life stuff that you got to deal with in real life in this basket, put your addiction in this one. You deal with that. Right. And all that stuff will that's figure right. itself out and take right. care of itself once that's you're right. sober enough to address it and deal with it when you're done. Mm -hmm. So that's what we focus on. So I want to call that out because I wrote it down because I said you're right and I've had that experience and seen it quite a bit um, Paul I love that you I love in a weird way because who knows who's <laughs> watching this Paul's like you know I'm not from New Jersey I'm from New Jersey <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted to throw it out there you're in New Jersey you're in New Jersey I was born in a real state before. I happened to also be a Staten Island boy born and raised but I didn't think it was necessary to bash New Jersey that's all good um, and then I also love the fact that you said again a lot of the stuff I say because I think about the the kids or the people watch us thinking getting into treatment because yeah. that's what we're about to go into now. Yeah. And that's why I like to point out diversity and the difference in backgrounds. Like the fact that I'm not, that I'm a dropout and that I never got a college education, that I've never got a college right. degree. And yet here I am anyway. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter right. what addiction did to right. you, where it took you, right. where you went. You know, Paul said, like, you wouldn't know it by looking at him. Now he used to be a ball player and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, look at us, right? right? Dude, now I'm like almost right. a 50-year-old man. And, That's of course, right. I'm uh, big as a house I've gotten. I used to work for a moving company, and I was ripped. Right. But I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> but life changes, man. Right. You know, can, things are different. but And it's all good. Right. Go ahead. Wait, can I make something? You know, Oh, stepping. by the way, just yell it out. Okay. You two, too. If you right. want to bang in, right. this, is, all right. this is back. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Stephanie, you mentioned homelessness. You said you were homeless. I was. It reminded me of, um, you know, I didn't kind of tell you like how my whole thing ended up. And, um, you know, like you, Rich, I was on Wall Street. I had my Series 7, my Series 6, my Series 63, my NBA. I had all these great things. I was director of sales and marketing for this big firm. And, and, and I knew I got sober and I knew sobriety. And then... My pride, my ego. And I told that story because I wanted you guys to know that, you know, that, that pride and that ego and, you know, how, you know, I, I always held on to that. And that same pride that got me all those great things was the same pride that when I relapsed that wouldn't let me come back. But I, I just wanted to talk about, like, you know, so here I am. I'm on Wall Street. I'm doing all these great things and I'm making all that money like you, like you talked about. But I couldn't find myself. Like, I was making all this money, but I wasn't happy. And then life hit me like it hits everybody. Uh, my wife, me and my wife weren't getting along. She had an affair. 
and it devastated me, devastated me. Then 9-11 happened, and I was on the seventh floor when that first plane hit, standing underneath when that second plane hit. And then a month later, after 9-11, they found my brother dead in my apartment in New York. So I'm going through all that with nine, half, ten years of sobriety, but not talking to anybody. And we talked about yep. how... You know, um, you said like how how, how addiction and, and it, 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 it doesn't care. But my addiction, everything, it's working on me. But I'm not telling anybody. I'm not saying anything mm. because I got all this money. And I'm too proud and too big to tell anybody what's going on. Mm. So just so you know, I, I lost my house. I lost that Wall Street job. I lost all that. And it wasn't until I found myself begging for welfare. That's my pride and ego right? is what made me homeless and kept me homeless because I didn't need anybody's help. Come on. Everything that I had lived through in my childhood, who I could very well blame my addiction on, yes. but the reality yes. of it is, is my addiction is my responsibility. I claim it. I own it. Right. My sickness. Right. But that pride and ego told me I didn't need anybody, which was as far from the truth exactly. as I could get. Because you know what? I needed my higher power. I needed other people. I needed my fellowship. I needed strong souls around me yeah. to carry me through. And you know, I think that the reason I still hold that one white chip is because I have a group of women that have surrounded me for 16 years. Mm -hmm. um, some have been around 16 years. Some have come. Some have gone. Mm -hmm. Some are brand new. Some are very much older than me in, you know, in this journey. But, um, you know, I, my daughter was diagnosed terminally ill. I have eight children and I've fostered and adopted four more. Mm -hmm. I've been in this industry for wow. 15 years. Mm -hmm. I have seen highs, lows, crashes throughout my sobriety. And I hold that one white chip today because that pride and ego stays in check because I don't oh, do yeah. it. Right. I don't do That's it. Great. My fellowship, right. my God does, because that pride and ego got me yeah, nowhere but homeless right. period right. end of story yeah. and that was one of the hardest things i had to grab yes. in the first two years of my recovery which brings us back to our topic but i'll yeah. wait yeah, yeah. No, that was good Listen, yes. right on break. Yes. Segue yes. back in. Yes. um but no i mean that's and yes. and it's an issue you know pride and ego the truth is we could just say you know what the hell with the rest of this topic let's talk about pride and ego. right <laughs> we could but how about the pride and ego that develops as a result of working in the field Totally. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, and one of the things is um, we have a whole we have a series of questions. Okay. Before I go into it, we have to take a, a pause, and we have to say for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the other side. Uh, this is the official podcast of Blue Crest Recovery Center. I'm Richie. I'm the CEO here at Blue Crest. Um, should I read you? Nah, you know what? You can watch us if you're already watching us. Then you know what you're watching us on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. <laughs> um, so we've been talking about um, we're just kind of what we were like, what happened, and what led us into the treatment field. Everyone that you see, if you're new, that's sitting here has been in addiction, active addiction personally in our lives, has found recovery, and then one way or another, we just told our individual stories of how we ended up in the treatment field. And so now, that's the main focus of the podcast is, and this is where we start going into the Q&A of this stuff, um, how does... there's we could break it down into 50 different ways. And one of the things I also wrote, because I reminded myself, think about what we have here, right? We have the housing aspect. We've got the marketing aspect. 
and just because that's the you know outreach. But marketing aspect, we hate to use the word because marketing is for tires and advertising, and we do people, it. and we have a passion for people, so we hate to use it. But for lack of a better term, outreach. But level so we'll say outreach. You've got the housing aspect, you've got the clinical aspect, you've got the owner rehab aspect yeah. of like the kind of global view of the whole thing. But when you fall into into the opportunity, the possibility of getting in treatment. Some people early in recovery stop and say to themselves, you know, I think I want to do this. I want to help people. I want to be a counselor. I want to be an outreach coordinator. Or I want to be a housing tech or I want to run a house or I want to, you know, and usually depending on who they kind of, who they kind of connect with, that's what yep, they gravitate yep, yep, towards. Yep. Plus some of it for some of you guys, it's personality. Some of us are born salespeople. Right? <laughs> my grandmother told me when I was a kid, you'd sign. And she also said, you're going to end up in jail, my grandmother. So I don't know, my grandmother was very... But she always said you could sell ice to an Eskimo, so I would gravitate towards that. Some people are more maternal or paternal, and so they may go more towards something else. So really it depends, but I personally think, and I'll hear from each of you guys, I think each one of those, and I hate to say this the wrong way, but don't misunderstand, but each one of those represent a different level of danger in early recovery for me. <laughs> I mean, let's, I'll, I'll call it that way, because ego, money, all that stuff, ego and money are two dangerous bedfellows in early recovery. Sometimes my sponsor, that's what my sponsor means by I wish you a slow recovery. He didn't mean getting recovered. He wanted me to speed through 12-step recovery, mm -hmm. but he wanted me life stuff. Mm -hmm. The slower that stuff repairs itself, sometimes for some of us, the better off we are. Mm -hmm. That deflation of ego and keeping where I'm slipping, clipping coupons for ShopRite and I'm putting only $6 in gas in my car at a time, it keeps somebody right and keeps you right yeah. behind it. And I think that that's a positive thing in early recovery as well. You mm -hmm. know what I like what you said, Richie, is you fell into this through a resentment. Yeah, kind of. I, I like, <laughs> I, 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 you're the only other person besides myself that I actually, I started my journey to be a counselor over a resentment. There you go. A oh, resentment wow. of my counselor in treatment. God bless her soul. So let's hear the story because oh, wow. that's the oh. thing. What really got you connected with treatment industry? So go ahead. Oh my goodness. So, you know, throughout my 11 month journey through treatment, I remember in the, you know, the first few months in residential treatment, I had a beast of a counselor. God bless her soul. I don't know where she is today, but um, I wish I could give her a big hug and didn't just tell her that everything she said was right. Um, that is not what I told her at the time <laughs> at all in any way. Um, I knew this woman was out to get me. She didn't like me. She didn't want my future at hand. I remember a game-changing event is I knew that I was going back to where I had just came from. And I was going to surround myself with the same people and I wasn't going to use because, you know, I had this. And she came in with the rap sheet of the house that I was going to in the middle of a group room. And she dropped it on the floor in front of all my peers. And uh, I said in that moment, you know, I think I had been in treatment three, four months, you know, very, very early recovery. I said in that moment, if she only knew what it was like to wake up under a bridge with footprints around you, not knowing what that was. If she only Ooh. knew what it was like to not mm. want to go get high, but not be able to stop your own feet. If she only knew the desperation, then she would be able to help me today. And I could do this better than she can. I could reach people better than she can. I know this path. So uh, that started out my journey. I thought that because I was educated, because I 
was what I considered to be clean and sober at that time, which I was literally just starting to not even crawl. I was like, what is that infancy stage when you start to roll over? And um, I really thought that I could bring the message so much better than this woman could. And I knew I was going to be the best counselor ever. And I was going to save so many people from the, uh, the horror and the experiences that I had by, you know, being that person. And uh, it all started with a resentment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I will tell you, it did not end well. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it did, really. And yet it did. And yet it did. And yet it did. And I'm really grateful today for her and for her, the fact that she wasn't in recovery. Yeah. And that she... Which which is what I was going to... Because I like to throw everything out yeah. as we thought she to was cry. not in no, recovery. I could literally do a whole separate yeah. section yes. with three counselors that are not in recovery. And anybody who thinks That's that right. you need to be in recovery That's to right. help people... Right. No, addiction, Correct. wrong, and wrong. I would never right. want a room full of us. Let's be honest, everyone some, in your treatment facility in recovery themselves, yeah. no way. I mean, we've got pros, amazing people that are with us, yeah. yes. but they're, That's right. they're all brought to addiction for their own reasons. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's a whole different perspective. Mm-hmm. It's an outside perspective. Right. It's a family member or somebody a family who is affected. In what, usually mm-hmm. they're affected in addiction, and so they don't mm-hmm. just find it by accident completely. Mm-hmm. They're usually affected in some way, shape, or form by yeah. a family member, whatever. Invaluable. Invaluable. Mm-hmm. And I remember back when I was an ignorant fool and I was in early recovery and I'd be like, I'm not, I wouldn't talk to a therapist. Like, I'm not going to talk to a counselor that's not, you know, don't, yes. your counselor's telling you that they're not even in recovery. They don't know what and it's I'm like. I'm saying stuff like that. Yeah. And somebody had pointed out to me, oh, so I don't understand. You have to have uh, a psychiatrist has to have anxiety and depression in order to help somebody through anxiety and depression. A counselor, you know, someone has to have had uh, AIDS in order to come up with a cure for AIDS. Like, that just makes no sense. Like no, nothing you do, you don't always have to have had the exact right. experience. As a matter of fact, sometimes the best help comes from someone who has a totally different perspective That's right. to be mm-hmm. able to meet that, right? To match that calamity yes. with serenity. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's just, there's all sides of it. And so that's important sure. to throw out there. And many of them have outside issues that need no, to be addressed. No question. Yeah, well, no, co- trauma, co- childhood, yeah, yeah, no co occurring. No um, all right, so let's throw this out there. I'm going to start hitting you guys up with some questions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I'll start with Nicoletta. Nicoletta, how does work in the addi- uh, addiction treatment industry affect your personal sobriety? <laughs> <laughs> well, oh God, you want the truth? No. And, <laughs> and, and conversely, how does your being in recovery affect your performance working in the treatment industry? It's an interesting... Yeah, I mean, it's pros and cons, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is this. As long as my personal recovery is not dependent on my job, and as long as my personal recovery is intact outside of my employment, I can perform my job very effectively. What do you mean by that? Having boundaries, trusting universe, trusting life, taking my own inventory. Why am I being challenged? What button is being pushed? Uh, what is this telling me about me? How can I be more helpful? How can I be more effective? Everything that I've learned in 12 Steps, everything that recovery has taught me are tools that I bring into life to deal with whatever situation, right? So whatever situation is thrown at me at work, I think there's like this element of like ego can really rebuild itself and we can feel very empowered by working in this field because we're constantly in a position of helping, Mm -hmm. right? We're serving others, we're helping. And there's a tiring aspect to that, number one right? There's a lot of neediness that's occurring. There's a lot of draining of energy that can be occurring, right? If I'm not 
you know, rehabilitating myself, so to speak, after work in some ways, recharging, self-caring, mm -hmm. cleansing, grounding, whatever. Well, so let me, let me, I want to ask you something. I want to get specific about, and I'll just, a couple of the things that I knew that I wanted to talk to each of you about to see what your own experiences are with it. Some people more directly affected maybe than others. You maybe earlier on in your career, not so much now, I think, but we'll see. But for you... You know, let's look at the tech part of it. Tech in for you too, especially, yeah. right? Let's talk about that. So you have clients that come to the facility or come to your house or whatever, and you're in charge and you're helping them or you're watching and you're minding them and you have an outside speaker come in, an outside NA speaker, a CA speaker, an A speaker, one of the 12-step people come in and they do a meeting. They have a yeah. meeting for your people. Mm -hmm. Now you're in the room, right? right and you gotta right. keep your eye on these folks, right? Because, right. you know, little Billy might be trying to sneak whatever and who's handing who what and you're like, yeah. psst, 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 listen to the speaker. You know, you're paying attention. Who's gotta go to the bathroom and you're like, oh my God, again. And yeah, so yeah. you're dealing with the whole meeting. Yeah. Then when that meeting is over and everyone goes back to, okay, did you make your meeting for the day? Is that your meeting? No. Did you make, did you no. make a 12-step no. meeting for that? No. Your personal no. recovery? No. No. But are you no. telling me that after you've not been if to I'm three paying. of those. Not, no, but But you've no. been to three of those don't throughout matter. the day. But it when don't you matter. leave work, you're telling me you want to go to I'm another not paying one attention for you? To, I'm not necessarily paying attention to the message. I'm right. paying attention. I'm getting paid for that. First of all, no. I'm getting paid Boy, for that. And that's the difference. Like, you can't call it service if you're getting a paycheck. I don't care who you are. That's a fact. And that's been my motto this whole time, and that's just the way it is and it's worked for me right. but don't you find it hard to want to go to another meeting sure for but you need to have stamina not everybody can work in this field when you. people come to me i say don't do it so yeah. don't do it unless you're absolutely sure you want to do it dip your toe in it volunteer be surrounded by it then so what do you say to the young person who just took a job <laughs> they're a tech in a treatment facility and they're telling me and telling you i did two meetings already today through my job, would you tell them they have to still go to me? And if they're the kind of people that are saying, I don't want to go to another meeting today, I'm all meeting now, what do you think their prospects are for long-term in that field or recovery? This is itself? the trap of being in recovery and working in the field. I would tell them the same thing that I tell somebody, some of my residents who are giving me a million excuses that I've heard a three, mil three million times about why they shouldn't go to a meeting, why they don't have to get a sponsor, why the job is more important, why the girlfriend is more important, or whatever. It's the alcoholic mind. I don't see individuals anymore. I see alcoholism or I see <laughs> sobriety. I see you're living in the truth sure. or you're delusional. And I think there is this, I think we confuse like I'm grateful and I'm experiencing surrender and I'm, and I'm like in this bubble of like recovery and safety and I'm, and you know, and then we want to give back and we want to serve and we get this fantasy idea yes of wanting mm -hmm. to work in the field mm -hmm. because we feel so close to it. But it's a, I think it's an idea that we get disillusioned with quickly. Yeah. Quickly. Yeah. Which you, is why I'm not in clinical. Do you, well, I was, <laughs> was going to ask. And I've done do all the think, classes. And that's why it's good. Do you I've think taken everyone, all the classes just to know what they're talking about. Right. What they're mm -hmm. getting educated But on. even that's not for everyone, right? In no. the field, there's a lot no. of different jobs no. and aspects of no. being able to help people. Being a tech is not for everyone. No. Unless right. you're willing to not take it personally. Unless you're willing to get punched in the face emotionally. <laughs> unless you're willing to get spat on. Yeah. Unless you're willing to get lied to and not like be a drama queen about it. Don't work in it. That's right. There you go. That's right. Like, 
like you need yeah. to have stamina sure. you need to have some grit you need to like not take things personally like it takes certain qualifications right. to work in the field agreed steph you are in outreach you sponsor women, I'm assuming. Absolutely. You sponsor gals, right? I do. So you get those phone calls, right? Can be kind of do. annoying sometimes. Let's be honest. When you sponsor a lot of girls, for me, it's a football game. Giants are on, although now I've yeah. kind of, this season stinks because of all the COVID stuff, but whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm watching the game and I see the phone ring and it's one of my sponsees. I'll be honest with you. I've been doing this 24 years. I don't really want to pick the phone up. I'm gonna, <laughs> but I don't want to. You know what I mean? That happens sometimes. But when you're in treatment, and you've taken 50 phone calls that day, and you've yeah. dealt with families mm. and this problem and that issue and this problem, and I don't want to go, and I'm on a street corner, and well, yep. you've done this to me three times already. Are you really going to be there? <laughs> um, oh, my God, my son. Okay, ma'am, calm down. We're going to talk you through this. Yep. Crying for an hour and a half. Right. And then you see a sponsee call coming in. You know you're good for another 45 minutes. At least. Drama. At least. And right. I, I sponsor women. So, 45 minutes is a Tell them. Call. Tell us. What does that look like to work as in outreach? It's got its own whole other set of, you don't deal with the same stuff they do, right? Because they're not, it's a little different. Your connection with them is a little different. Right? I, started, I started as a tech. I'm oh, I know. For, you I'm, know it all, but I'm, I'm talking about this aspect. for punishment. But no, but I'll you tell you. Speak, I'm asking for you to speak on, right. and, and again, before you answer, I'm going to say, because this is my point, the housing part, and we get it. I see. I mean, you're talking about in the trenches every day, going to every the meetings. Day, all day. On top of what you already have to do to do your own personal recovery, you've made it clear, and I get it. But there's also something grounded about that, doing tech work to start with. Now, you may move up and over and right mm -hmm. and left and do other things in treatment, become a full counselor, go over into outreach. You could work in admissions. You may start as a tech to learn the field and then find your, into your what you're drawn towards. And if the place you work for is good, they're going to look and have an eye. They're going to want to develop your talent and what you right. feel passionate for. Right. And that's all well and good and that's fine. There's a grounding to that. And when you start out there, you learn the field. I like. I think that's the best way to start is in either housing or just a plain tech on the floor with no CDC classes right. until you've learned a little yes. bit and decide for yourself, do I want to, can I actually right. do this for a living? Some people go right into the outreach uh, yes. coordinators. Oh, and now that is, that there's, is there's the more most money, dangerous there's thing you can do. There's more ego. I think it's the most dangerous, the most aspect dangerous of early treatment. thing you can do. We would never... We don't no. like to hire anybody unless they have two years of recovery. We have made some exceptions for people who are very 12-step oriented, but not less than a year. And, and and really, we want two years at a minimum because there's a maturity that comes with yes, that. Right. I see people hire yeah. people in marketing after six months, which I think uh. is insane. But then you have other people who fall into housing stuff quite a bit earlier. You did. If yeah. the motivations are right and the person's the right type and you feel okay with it as long as you keep an eye on them and you're holding their hand through right. the process, okay, fine. But your end is tough. Your end is difficult. So Richie, tell I'll tell you, coming straight into marketing is is almost, you know, setting yourself up for a relapse period in story. I mean, mm. you don't have a personal life in this space. There is no you time because it doesn't matter where you are or what are you, you're doing. You know not answering that phone could mean life or death for someone. Yes. Period. End of story. Like this phone for me is a lifeline to so many people that don't know where else to turn. It's that card, right? It's that card somebody handed. Now, like I, I'm a mother, you know, my husband is a saint. 
because <laughs> I've been in this space for 15 years. I've been marketing for 13 of those 15. And uh, I mean, he's seen me answer phones in labor with our children. Oh, you know, I, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I'm as yeah, serious as a heart I'm attack. I'm so glad you brought that up because you know? I'll throw that out there from my own marketers, from my own outreach. Because yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There are some of them whose girlfriends are done, they leave them. They're they're I'm done. done. I'm not doing this anymore. It's ridiculous. I'm, We're on vacation. Yep. And they're picking up a call vacation. at side of Mexico. Right. And I'm telling these guys, Stop answering your phone. Forward it to someone else. Take a week off. Disconnect. But you can't. They can't they do it. That's that right. first that's time. Right. That's that right. first that's time. Right. That's right. That first time. Yeah. You you talk to that mother that's, that's lost that child. I'm with you. I get it. That first time yes, you've made that connection that's with right. someone, yep. and you know that they're no longer here to give a breath. Yeah. It does something to you as a marketer. And I'll tell you that weight that you carry, right? Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody at 11 o'clock at night and I said, man, I can have a driver there for you. Like, it doesn't matter where you're at or what you're doing. I can, I can get you there right now. Hell, I'll come myself. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know what? I, I just need an hour. And I never spoke to that person again. Yeah. Like, you carry that with you. Yeah. You carry that Oof. in every fiber of your being. Mm -hmm. I'm a mother. Good people carry That's it. That's great. Because let's also be honest. When people in early recovery... You're a big book girl, and you're in this for real. Like you're in this. I'm in like, this. For you, Heart you and soul. Have a passion for it, but there's a difference. Mm -hmm. Some people are in this for money, like anything else. And like, who am I to say? But I can say that there are some places that are better than others. Some people that are better than others. Better meaning there are people in in anything in the world for the right reasons and for the wrong reasons. And if that right reason is up front, you can tell just by talking to someone that that's the thing, right? Like you know the difference, and you can tell the difference between somebody who knows the right things to say. Day, but it's not a part of them. Right. But for it's a calling. It yeah. really is. It it's is. a calling. And I you see know, that in you clearly. I tell people all the time, I hire people and I say, this isn't a job. This is a life commitment. Yeah. This isn't nine to five. This isn't, you know, vacations. I mean, one of my favorite things now is I'm teaching my girls to ski, right? And I have a, a jacket that my phone sits right <laughs> Right here. I can't tell you. I've answered the phone on Space Mountain at Disney World. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a commitment. And in early recovery, that takes every piece of you. It fuels your your pride and ego. And it takes all of that love and nurture that you need to be pouring into yourself to become that healthy, grounded, well-boundaried, stable yes. person. Yeah. And you've just given it away. Yeah. Yes. You've literally just said, it is no longer about me. It is about everyone that's that's in need and then you know it does something to you it really does so many marketers they come in and early and i've seen it time and time and time again you know they'll they'll make the mistake of showing up to bring somebody in and they walk into that house and they don't ever walk back out sober, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. They they go in, it's almost like, you know, the, the plane. you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself right. first right. because, I'm you know, it. you ain't making it out if you pass out. Yeah. And that's, I see it in marketing time and time again. And, you know, I thank God that um, he put my path where it is and, and really, you know, and really cracked my knuckles on, on working inside the treatment center. Sure. 
before he gave me the opportunity to reach out to what I love and what I'm super passionate about, and that's speaking to other families and other people in need and, and sending the message to the officers and to the hospitals and to the first responders and to, you know, everyone that, that sees this ugly disease, you know, head on day after day and minute after minute and saying there is hope. My first wife, ex-wife would say, muy peligroso. <laughs> Very dangerous, or can be anyway. So, yes, my man, Paul, let's go to you. So, I mean, the questions are all the uh, similar, but the same. But um, first, same question to you, because you're, you know, tech on the floor. You right. deal with everybody. Like I said, you're more closer to where you have to see them in meetings and right. you run some groups. Right. And you, But running a group and, and having one on ones with people all right. day long, mm -hmm. um, doing what you do to help. And dude, I see you like right. you have a God effect on people. That are, <laughs> I know I'm serious, right? Like. You're a total God guy, but it don't mean you don't need to go to church. How do you separate the two? How do you how do you separate the two? How do you live that boundary where you have to have personal recovery and then you bring what you bring and you give of yourself? And I know you give fully. I watch you day in and day out. <laughs> but how do you manage both of those things where it creates a buoyancy rather than make you feel like you're going to drown? Okay. So, um, you guys... First of all, I almost felt like crying when I listen to some of the things you guys say. And you know what, um, Richie? I Paul don't cries a lot. I, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm very. Oh my God, that's great. Um, I don't forget where I came from. You know, um, I went from Park Avenue to the park bench. I went from the penthouse to the outhouse, and I'll never forget that. And I'm one of those kind of guys. And we talked about homeless and all that. But my my higher power, God, He had to break me. I talked about the ego and pride. I was broken. Mm -hmm. But they talk about, you know, sometimes, you know, I wasn't just broken. God didn't just humble me, but he humiliated me. The the foreclosure sign, them taking away the cars. So when I got, when I started getting better and I and I work where I work now, uh, I, 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 I watch this and I, it's more than just a, this is not a job for me. This is the way I, I'm supposed to be. You know, I, I, I always think, I was telling somebody else about this story, you know, I'm, I'm a tech. I'm a, I'm a tech. I do, I take urines. Uh, I, I, um, I move chairs around. I move clients around. I set up, I set up uh, rooms. And people say like, you know, yeah, but you're on Wall Street. Yeah, but like, this is what keeps me humble. I do this, there was this one day, I'll never forget it, Richie, at Bluecrest, and I was throwing out the garbage. And my boss called me, Drew had called me, and he said, hey, Paul, the, uh, the ashtray, the cigarette thing on the outside is smoking. So I got this garbage bag in my hand. Now he wants me to go put the, the, the uh, garbage out, you know? Now he wants me to put uh, water on, on, on the garbage. So I go outside, and I'm pouring this, and it started to rain. So I had garbage in my hand. I'm pouring out, the, and it started to rain. And one of the buses pulled up where all the clients are coming in. And there I am, 55 years old with all this. And, and it was like almost God showing me, like, this too is okay. And I didn't feel bad about it. You know what I mean? It, it hit me for a while. But you, for me, I had to get to the point. And I want you guys to know, like, when, 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 I, got, when, I, when I lost my job on Wall Street and I, and I, and I, and I was bankrupt, I, I was bankrupt. But for me, I was spiritually bankrupt. Like when I lost everything, I lost my money, but I lost my soul. I lost everything in me. So when I got back in treatment and I got back this, I do this because it keeps me grounded. I love this job. 
I love what I do. It's it's more than a passion for me. So now, you know, um, I'm a God guy. I'm a love guy. I always talk about love. Uh, love is the foundation of everything that I do. Um, so I love helping people. But I do. I have to be very careful. It's love. It's the boundaries. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, my higher power. I'm, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. Um, I When I started off in this field, I didn't start off like coming here to work. I started off ministering. In, um, in treatment programs. I started off going to prisons, speaking to the guys. I started off going to Salvation Armies, speaking to the guys about who I am and what else. And then I kind of fell into this. So I kind of keep it separate because I know that I want to help them, but I know who I am. And I know what I can be. My ego and pride can flare up at any time. So I'm constantly going to my higher power and, and being honest. We talk about being honest, open, and willing. I, I don't let my, um, I keep my humility where it is. I love what I'm doing, but uh, I can only help them as much as I help myself. So at the end of the day, when I watch them do whatever they do, I am certain and I'm very aware there before the grace of God goes I. And if I don't take care of me, I could be right back in those seats. That's it. Amen. Right back in those seats. One bad decision away from be- sitting with the people that I'm trying to help. And I don't want that today. Yeah. We all sponsor people, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. anytime you ever oh, see yeah. me, all you got to do is ask Gabriel. She's sponsoring guys right now. And if I ever say no, I'm dead. Right. I'm mm-hmm. dead. You know it. Oh, yeah. you better yeah. stay away from me. <laughs> or if you're thinking of relapse, and I might be a good partner to go out with for a while. Yeah. But I mean, it's that's a fact, right? Sponsoring yeah. people becomes everything. Yes. You know, it's funny how ego can mix with anything that we do because we're t- talking a lot about that. And that is big in the treatment field. Anybody thinking about getting into the treatment field, definitely you, the one that started up bringing up, and you were right, you know, and the ego. And it can have its play even in the other side. It's not just in the treatment field. It's in our personal recovery side, mm-hmm. right? When you get asked to go speak a lot, I go speak right. a lot. People were asking me, like, oh, can you come do this conference? Can you do that conference? Blah, blah, yeah, I'll do that conference. You know, I have people call me up. We're out there now. Bluecrest, my story's out there. LinkedIn, this, that. I get calls from people I used to work with many years ago. My kid, this, that. And I remember I had gotten a call, and the guy's like, hey, you know, my kid and whatever. And I'm like, well, listen, uh, you want him to really come to my, if he comes to my rehab, I can't sponsor him. But if you send him somewhere else, I can go meet with him, and I'll work with him one-on-one. Like, yeah, but he needs rehab. Like, no, I don't think you understand. You need a great sponsor. Like, I'm like, hear myself saying this. Like, I think I'm a great sponsor, right? But, I mean, I'm so invested in both mm-hmm. sides. The ego could come anywhere. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. the, what do people need? They need it all, right? I mean, the, yeah. if we could they give do. them the best of everything, a solid sponsor, a solid. But at the end of the day, yeah. all any of us can ever really do is the best that we can are we showing up with the right motivations? Do we show up the right way? Are we giving our all? Are we making time for ourselves, right. for God, self-care? Are we are we doing our inventories? Are we sponsoring people? Are we doing stay all grounded. the 12 work stay that grounded. we yes. stay grounded? Stay are we grounded. doing our own work so our own house is clean and in order? And if we are and we look at the right motivations to show up in treatment, Best of all worlds, that's how you stay buoyant instead of it bringing you down to the bottom. Yeah. If I'm out of whack in either one of those areas, the one can totally screw the other. Yeah. But if both, I think, are lined up well, I think that they complement each other so well. I've had texts on my house, and one of them just said to me the other day, he's like, you know, 
I know a lot of people say they struggle sometimes doing this and doing that, but I gotta tell you, I feel like the work I do here just makes me even more alive, and I'm like, good for you. But that's where he's at right now. Right. His personal recovery is clearly rock star, and now the experience he's having here is rock star as well. And he's like, I don't get it. Like in his mind, like, are you crazy? This makes me even more connected to God. But that's not always the case. No, it's not no. always the case, and sometimes it can feel that way for a year. But we have to always yeah. be very mindful of that brick wall. Have it's any of you had anybody who came to you in your careers and the places you work? And if you haven't had anybody at Blue Crest do a poll, you will. But for you two especially, I've mm. had people who've come to me, great techs in house houses. I've had great clinicians, young, early people who've come to me and said, I can't do this anymore. And oh. these are good big book kids. And I'm like, really? Because I love them. And I'm like, really? And they're like, Dude, my personal recovery, I discussed it with my sponsor and I was like, say no more. I tell them all when they start, if at any point you get to the point where you feel like this might not be, you've got to recognize that and be honest with us. Yeah. And I've had them come to me and I love when they do. I hate it because I love them in the field and I know they can help a lot of people. Right. But if it's wrong for them and that once you become aware it's wrong for you, that's it. You got to wow. go. You oh, got to yeah. call it. All right, so Kevin is saying that we're out of time. Oh, my God, we did go a little long, wow. but there's nothing wrong with that. I guess everything we said <laughs> needed to be said. Thanks for raining on parade, Kev. We wow. appreciate it. Um, Nick, thank you for not giving us any of the questions or comments. I don't know if you're still in the garage, but... There was only, only it's a couple of comments. Don't Nick said there was only about three dozen comments and 12 questions, and we didn't get to any of them. All right, well, next time, anybody who had a question, we'll email you the answers, and anybody with negative comments, keep them to yourselves. But... I want to thank all three of you guys um, for coming, and this is a lot of fun to hang, right? I said it wasn't scary. It's just we're all talking to each other. I just warmed up. And yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we can go. Now we can go. What's our next? What's our next topic? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. We'll Let's have you guys go. back again series? for no? future three, four-part series. <laughs> but thank you very much for everybody for coming, and be well. And uh, from Bluecrest, we'll see you next time.